we are struggling um, through Advent, or we are racing through Advent, or we're skipping through Advent, depending on where you're at, as we talked about earlier, we continue um, in our season of Advent. And and, uh, I want to ask you this. I want you to think for a second. What is the favorite thing you've ever gotten for Christmas? I got laser tag. Now, some of you that are younger are looking at that going, man, that looks really cheesy. Yeah, I know. But when I was a kid, and I used to play war with my brother a lot, and I used to shoot him regularly, and he used to say, you missed. And I'd say, but Mike, I'm looking right at you. I shot you. He's like, you forgot about the kickback. You missed. And then he would keep on playing, and inevitably he would win. Um, Then one year for Christmas... My parents bought us laser tag. The beauty of laser tag is you see that little sensor there with the, the, the burgundy red square. You put that on your chest, and when you shot it, it made a noise, and it lit up. So there was no more lying and saying, guess what? You missed me. And then when you got shot six times, you were out, and um, your younger brother could win. That was until your older brother figured out that if he covered up the speaker, he could turn it off and turn it back on, Um, and then you'd have to start over, but whatever. That was the best present we ever got. I remember that we desperately wanted that. Uh, My parents will tell you now, they wouldn't admit it then, but they drove to Chicago and and went from store to store and stood in a long line at a lot of different places to track that down for us, Um, but it was probably one of my, as a kid, all-time favorite presents. So here's what I'm going to ask. What's the gift you're hoping for most this Christmas? Or what's the favorite gift that you've ever received? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of it, and I want you to tell somebody that you're sitting by. I'll give you a minute. If you're sitting all by yourself, then you just have to turn behind you. All right, what is it? What's the best thing? I'm sorry, it was dog food? Dog poop was your favorite thing. Talk to Greg after the service, and he will tell you. Oh, you got a dog out of it. Okay, I understand. That's a weird way to tell you that you had a dog. I think your parents are awesome, by the way. I... All right, what else? Favorite thing? Who had the Cabbage Patch Kid? That was your favorite thing. Yeah, a couple of you. Sega. Sega. I remember when we got an Atari, which means I'm older than that, but um, that was a big deal. See, whatever it is, when we get gifts that we love, that's great. It's great to get gifts that we love. We kind of talked about this a little bit last week. It's great when we get gifts that we love because it speaks to our heart. It speaks to our soul. It tells us, you know what? We've got some, somebody got us something that they knew that we'd want, that they knew that we'd appreciate. And so they bought us something that, that would speak to our heart. And all of that is good. There's nothing wrong with that. But what we've been talking about and tracking through this, and this is where we have to check our heart a little bit. This Advent 
is a good time for us to do that, but really all the time is necessary for this. One of the things that we have to do is check our heart because a lot of times, for a lot of us, what, what life turns into, what Christmas turns into, but life too, what it turns into is this idea that we are so focused on what we want, what we think we need, or what we get that we kind of lose sight of everything else. And so we have to check our heart because when that happens, something happens with our worship of the God of the universe and it gets broke and I, my heart doesn't beat with his and I'm not in line with him. And so we need to talk a little bit about that today, but I want to remind you of these two verses, right? Ecclesiastes 3.11a, we talked about last week, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. This is just simply a reminder that says this, when your heart yearns for more and more and more, the reason that your heart yearns for more and more and more is because God designed you to want more and more and more. The problem is, because of our sin nature, the more and more and more that I yearn for is eternity that's been stamped in my heart, and the stuff that I try to accumulate, the stuff that I long for, is never going to satisfy. And so whatever it is that I have, it'll be nice for a minute, and it's great to have those things, but ultimately it will leave me empty and wanting more because that's not what God has stamped my heart with. God didn't stamp my heart with a laser tag set. You stamp my heart with eternity. And so ultimately, the laser tag set, while it was awesome, and get this, I still have the gun and the sensor. They don't work, but I have not been able to bring myself to throw them away. They made several moves with me. They, they moved from my parents' home when, when they sold it to the house that we rented together and, and then they went to the house that we had in Bettendorf that, that we bought and lived at. And then they came to here to the house we rented for a month, but we still weren't quite done with them. So now they're in the basement of our current house. Why? Because it's hard to part with them, right? But when our heart starts to long for those, we have a problem. And then Jesus tells us, and Paul recounts it uh, for us in Acts twenty thirty five. says, you should remember the words of Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. See, it's not wrong to receive. It's blessed to receive. When we receive, we are blessed. That's not a bad place to be. I don't want anybody to hear something I'm not saying. Wanting things, enjoying things, anticipating things, having them, that's all fine and good. The, the, the thing is that, that God never says it's wrong to have. But what God does say is check your heart, because when those become it, then you've got a problem. But instead, we've been hardwired for something different. We've been hardwired for eternity, and there's something that God has wanted us to know and understand. And I'm excited to show you this next slide. We've referenced this a little bit lately, but I'm excited to show you because this is one of the values. We're going to be hearing more and more about the DNA of, of the future merged church that we've been working on and meeting on. But this one here is one that is um, very similar to one of the values that exists there. And it's just this idea, again, we've talked about this, that we are not meant to be containers. We are meant to be conduits. God calls us to be conduits of his grace, not containers. And being a conduit of God's grace flies in the face, directly in the face of a heart's desire to accumulate and have more and more and more. 
And we want more and more and more because we have this longing for something better, but God's put eternity on our hearts, not stuff on our hearts. And so we've got this wrong. And when we understand this value, when we understand this truth, that God designed you to be a conduit of his grace, not a container, then we'll understand that in order for our heart to beat with God's, we need to exhibit something called irrational generosity. Irrational generosity is something that doesn't make sense to people that don't live there. When you are irrationally generous, it means that people that are not living in the grace of God will look at you like you are being foolish and you are making a silly choice. When you are being irrationally generous, what happens is people will look at you and they will wonder, why in the world would you act that way when instead you could have more for yourself? Why in the world would you pour out in that way when instead you could accumulate more for yourself? But to be irrationally generous understands that you are a conduit of God's grace, not a container. And we're going to see that work through the scripture. God gives us the perfect example on the night, it's not the night, as part of the, the Christmas story. And, and it happens with the Magi and the gifts of the Magi. They are irrationally generous. And we're going to take a look at what it means to be irrationally generous through this story. So let's check this. It starts in Matthew 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About the time some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw a star as it rose and we've come to worship him. Okay, so the first thing I want you to know about irrational generosity is simply that it goes out of its way. If you want to live a life where your heart beats with God's, where you are irrationally generous, where you are a conduit of God's grace rather than just a hoarder of it, if you want to live that kind of life, then here's the first thing you need to know. That kind of generosity always has to go out of its way. That kind of generosity has to go out of its way. That kind of generosity makes sacrifices. That kind of generosity always has to take steps to be uncomfortable and out of its way. And, and we see that with the wise men. We see that with the magi. We see that here. Um, and and here's, here's how I want you to understand this. Uh, in fact, I just about made the mistake when I said, oh, it's, it's the example from the night Jesus was born. We see a manger scene, and it's always got three kings in it. They're always there, right? They're always there at the stable. They're always there at the manger. They're always looking over baby Jesus in the manger, and they're always putting their gifts down in front of the manger. But the reality is they weren't there, okay? They weren't there. Uh, they didn't, in fact, get there for quite some time. And, and one of the things we do is we do the wise men a great disservice when we assume that they were there at the beginning. And we do them a great disservice when we act like they were there at the beginning, although it makes for a better Christmas story. And honestly, I'm pretty sure I know where it comes from because there's more parts in a Christmas play when we can add three kings, right? So, so we add three kings. There's more roles for kids to play. They're cute. They put costumes on. Everybody likes it. It's good stuff. But the reality is they weren't there. And even, even in tradition when we say, okay, well, we know they weren't there the night of, you know, so, so we get this this epiphany, they were there 12 days later, right? The 12 days later. That's not really fair either. Because what that tells me is they, they man, they, they had to, they oh, look, hey, there's Jesus. And so we packed up some stuff and, and we took a short little trip. But that's not what happened. Like this, this kind of generosity that they distribute or, or that they exhibit, this, this goes way out of their way. 
In fact, here, here's how we know that they didn't get there soon. We know they didn't get there soon simply because um, we know that Herod, who happened to be king um, of the Jews at the time, uh, a puppet king, but king of the Jews at the time, when the Magi come and ask him, and they ask him, hey, where is the newborn king of the Jews? Um, and he asks the question of them, well, when did this happen? When did the star appear? Upon their leaving, he knows that they're not going to help him um, kill Jesus. And so what does he do? He orders in Bethlehem every two-year-old boy and younger to be murdered. He orders the murder of two-year-old boys and younger. Now, listen, there is a big difference between a 12-day-old and a two-year-old. There's a big difference between a six-month-old and a two-year-old. And you know what? We're thinking, well, that was a long time ago. Maybe they didn't know those things then. I'm thinking they had it figured out, right? But he orders the death of every two-year-old child and younger. We're not talking about a quick trip across town for the Magi. We're talking about something that cost them a great deal. Irrational generosity costs more than people understand. And it costs more than people are willing to let stand without asking you if you've lost your mind. When you decide to be irrationally generous, people will question you. They will question your motives. They will question your sanity. Men, can you imagine one of our wise men going to his wife and saying, look, honey, I got to go. I promise it's just a six-month trip. By the way, I need the gold. Trust me, it's going to be okay. There's a baby somewhere that needs it. I mean, wives, can you imagine if you came to your husband and asked that very same thing? It's irrationally generous, and it, it goes out of its way right? And not only does it go out of its way, but you got to love this. Like, they would have had to study this, right? It's not like God wrote next to the star in the sky, by the way, this is the Messiah of the Jews that everybody's been waiting for. They would have had to be studying this. They would have had to know this, right? That's what these magi were, right? They were astrologers, right? They were astrologers, um, and so they would have studied the scars, and they would have studied prophecy, and they would have studied these things, and they would have known, but they would have had to study and find out what Numbers 24, 17 means. I see him. This is Balaam, the prophet, not the prophet of God, but this is Balaam, who, who God directs his actions because God is God. He directs his actions, and Balaam then prophesies this, and he says, hey, I see him, but not here and now. Uh-uh. I perceive him but he is far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob. That is the Jews. A scepter will emerge from Israel. And so those wise men, they, they, would, have, they would have had to wrestle with, okay, well, we see a star. It's coming, it's coming from the land of Israel. What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, there's a scepter that emerges. This, there's a king somewhere. And they would have had to understand Genesis 49.10 that says the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from its descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. 
and all nations are going to honor them, all nations, then these wise men say, you know what? If all nations will honor this king, the one that's been prophesied, the one whose star we see, it's so abnormal, it's so absurd, we see it, we have to respond. They went out of their way in irrational generosity to, to pack up everything they had and to go. This was not a quick trip. This was a trip that took finances. It took provision. It took time away from their um, their functions. Probably these men had similar roles as the one when we read the book of Daniel. And, and uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has the dream and he asks all of the wise men to interpret the dream. Probably these are men that had similar functions as that. So they had to prepare, they had to pack, they had to leave, they had to convince the king, whoever they served, that they needed to go and that they needed to worship this other king. But irrational generosity makes us do things that are crazy. It makes us do things that are fanciful. It makes us do things that other people can't understand. And because you are a conduit of God's grace, he calls you to be irrationally generous to the point where other people have no idea why. We keep going. There's more. The end of that text They entered the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him, and then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. You know, the thing about irrational generosity, too, it's not just that it goes out of its way, but irrational generosity, you know what it does? It costs. It's not generous if it doesn't cost you something. And I'm not just talking about your money. It's not a rational generosity if it doesn't cost you something, your forgiveness, your mercy, your time, maybe your treasure, but it's got to cost you something. They opened their treasure chest and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know what's awesome about that? I didn't read you this part of the text, but you know the story well. Before they get to where Jesus is in Bethlehem, they stop at the palace in Jerusalem, right? Because they know that this is this star. It prophesies this seed of Judah, this seed of Jacob, this seed who will grow into this scepter that all nations will bow down to and that all nations will worship. They know this from the prophecy. So where do they go? They go to the palace and they say to Herod, the king, hey, show us the baby that was born. Show us the baby who is to be this new king. Of course, he's not there, but you know what happens when they're there? They don't give Herod gold. They don't give Herod frankincense. They don't give Herod myrrh. I don't know. They've got those reserved for the king. So they come and they ask, and, and eventually they, they wind up, they find out where um, the baby was to be born, and the baby was to be born um, in Bethlehem. And so that's where they go, and they find out, yep, he's still there. He's in Bethlehem, and, and they give him the gifts that were reserved for him because irrational generosity costs. And you, you, you probably know this, Um, but the street value today of gold and frankincense and myrrh um, in the weights that they were given most likely is millions. I said street value like it's drugs. It's not. That is completely the wrong way for me to have said that. I mean, I don't know, like, what you guys do with your frankincense. All I know is that you can buy it. Come on, who's into the oils? Okay, I don't know what you do with it. Like, what's the special thing that frankincense does? You don't know either. That's fine. Um, 
but you buy it in this little thing and it costs a lot. <laughs> They've got this jug of it. Um, listen, I, I don't know. I just know it's expensive stuff and they give it as gifts. And you know what? It's all meaningful. It's one of the things that I love about this story that we often miss is that I think these wise men, they understood who Jesus was better than any of the prophets and the scribes and the Pharisees and the leading teachers of the law understood who Jesus was. They had no idea who the Messiah was. Even when, when they understood that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, they had no idea that, that he was going to be a suffering Messiah. They had no idea that he was God himself. They had no idea of any of these things. These wise men, it seems like they knew. It seems like as they studied the scriptures, and they would have studied the scriptures. That's the only way they would have known. They would have studied the scriptures. They were learned men. I don't know that they would have all believed them all, but they would have read them all. They would have known them. And here's what they knew. They knew that this child was to be king. And so they brought gold because gold was the mark of a king. And they knew that this child was to be a priest and was divine and had holiness in him, which is why they brought frankincense. That's what that was about. Frankincense was, it was an, an incense that was used, an oil that was used in the worship of God. And so they brought it to him as an act of worship. And then they brought him myrrh, which was a spice that was used in burial. See, I, I, don't, I don't know what they knew, but they knew more, it seems like, than the priests and the teachers of religious law in Jerusalem knew. They knew that there was something special about Jesus, and their heart was beating with God's in this moment, and they showed irrational generosity. They went out of their way to plan, prepare, and go, and then they showed irrational generosity by giving valuable things to their king. They didn't hoard it. They didn't keep it for themselves, but they gave it. And then here's this last thing. Man, I, here, here's something I want you to know in this text. Irrational generosity, that's worship. There is a, a hard connection between being generous, being a conduit of God's grace. There is a hard connection between being a conduit of God's grace and worshiping the God of the universe. They entered into the house and they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. How did they bow down and worship him? They opened their treasures and they gave them. They basically said in an act of worship, you, baby Jesus alone, are worth everything that we have here. Take it. Have it. And again, they didn't give those things to Herod. They didn't give him gifts. They didn't bow down and worship Herod. I'm sure when they got to the palace, they gave Herod a cursory bow. But they didn't bow down in worship. It's the difference. It's what Lisa's talking about. When she, when she talks about celebration and how we lead and how we respond in worship, it's the difference between singing along to a song on your radio. Because there are songs that you can't help but sing on your radio. Come on, who's with me? Cheap trick. I want you to want me. I can't help it. But that's different. That's different than when we come together to sing praises to our king. They're both acts of singing and celebrating, but one has meaning and value, and the other is just cursory. But real generosity is worship. They bowed down, they worshiped him. Plain and simple. 
because giving is worship. And, and here, here's what I need you to know. Your generosity is an act of worship. When you understand that you're merely a steward of God's grace, when you let God's grace flow through you, you worship. That's why that value that we have placed on um, the, the new merged church, that's why that has such critical importance. Because understanding that we are conduits of God's grace not containers, means that you understand that you are wired to be irrationally generous, and when you are rationally generous, you worship. That's what that means. And you know what? I've got a lot more in my notes, but we're actually going to stop here. Merry Christmas. <laughs> but we're going to stop here for a reason, because I've got more to say, but I, I don't want you to miss this. When you understand that you are a steward of God's grace. Then, and when I said I was going to stop here, I just meant I wasn't going to go to any more slides. <laughs> so let's be clear. When you understand that you are a steward of God's grace, and you get that, and not just get it, but then you act as if it's true, you are worshiping the God of the universe. You understand stewardship, right? We were actually having this conversation um, the other day. Is stewardship a common enough word that we understand what it means? And, and honestly, what we came up with was we didn't think so. We weren't sure that people understood stewardship as well as we should. And so um, stewardship is when I'm given something on someone else's behalf to use it, to spend it, to distribute it, but not on my behalf. I'm supposed to do it on their behalf. Um, someone that is in charge of a trust, right? Someone, so, so let's say somebody that's rich, they die, they put their money in a trust, and they say, Matt, we want you to lead the trust, which means Matt gets to decide how the money is distributed, but Matt doesn't get to decide to do whatever he wants. Matt's in charge of the trust at the other person's behest. It's their resources, and they've trusted me to be in charge of them on their behalf. I am a steward of those resources. That's what that means. Travis, the other night, um, he and, and a couple of buddies went to his big sister's house in um, Cedar Rapids. And because Riley is awesome, she's like, yeah, come out, spend the night at, at my house, and we'll go to the movie. They saw Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse or something like that. Ooh. You can ask him about it. I didn't see it. Um, but, uh, but I was like, okay, so here, Travis, here's 20 bucks. Here's $20 because your sister's being so gracious and I don't want her to have to spend money on your ticket or hers. So here's 20 bucks. You buy the tickets, whatever. If Travis had taken that $20 and done something else with it, then he would have been a poor steward of what I had given him. If he had bought his own ticket and his own popcorn and his own pop, and by the way, 20 bucks bought two tickets. That's all it bought. Right? So if he had decided that he was going to buy his ticket and also buy his snacks and Riley was going to fend for herself, then he would be a poor steward. He would have forgotten the fundamental truth that that money was not his in the first place. It was mine given to him, some so he could enjoy and some so that he could bless his sister. When God gives us resources, and I'm not just talking about money, I'm talking about the grace of God. When God gives us resources to steward he gives them some so that we can enjoy and experience, but many so that we can steward them appropriately on God's behalf to people that need them. That's what it means to be a conduit 
of God's grace. Carrie and I went to see a movie earlier this week. It was uh, um, Bohemian Rhapsody. as the Freddie Mercury story. Um, if you're a Queen fan, it's worth watching. Um, you know, that guy had been given some grace of God. He stewarded it poorly. And he made a name for himself. Um, I enjoy listening to Queen. I love the fact that when I watch Flash Gordon, all I hear is the Queen soundtrack because that's who wrote the music for Flash Gordon. You're welcome. Check that out when you go home, right? Because that guy, it's good stuff. But, but he had been given this wonderful grace of God, this voice, this personality, this thing that was drawing to people. And he used it successfully from a worldly perspective. But he was a container. Everything that came in was all about himself. What would it have been like if everything that had come in had just flowed through him as a grace of God? I've been given graces of God. I've been given mercy, forgiveness, peace, grace, financial graces of God. I've been given a grace of God that, that I can speak in front of large groups of people and not get nervous. I've been given a grace of God that I can understand the scriptures and hopefully I can explain them. I've been given the grace of God that hopefully I can influence some. But those graces are only valuable if... Those graces only do what they're supposed to do if I allow myself to be a conduit in irrational generosity to let them flow through me on behalf of God to the people that he wants me to minister to. If I just keep them for myself, if I just contain them, if I hoard them, then my heart doesn't beat with God's. And there's a gap. So we're going to end with this, um, and I'm just going to ask you this very simple question. What if? What if you saw it that way? What if you saw the graces that God has given you? Your time, your talent, your treasure, your personality, the things that you have, the things that you're good at, the things that you thrive in. What if you really saw the grace that God has given you as something that you were meant to steward instead of keep? Is something that you were meant to pour out for God's benefit, I'm sorry, for God's behalf to benefit others that it was supposed to flow through you, what would that look like? How would your life look different? How would your relationships look different? How would our community look different? I love, I love Erica and Brandy's testimony because what that tells me is that some people in their lives before they got to this church, before we had an opportunity to share God's truth with them, before we got an opportunity to open up the word, before we ever even got to the idea of baptism, somebody let God's grace flow through them. Uh, Maria Davis, Maria Davis, who's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to love a Bible, which is so weird, women. <laughs> you don't see many men loving Bibles. I mean, we love our Bibles, but you guys, you draw pretty pictures in them, and you write little cute notes in them, and guys like me think, that is weird. But then you take them, and the time and effort and energy, and you pray over it, and then you give them to somebody who 
you don't know what's going on in their lives, but you give it to them and they know it and they read it and they cherish it and they love it. And then it sets the stage for an invitation later on as somebody who's newly a member at the church says, you know what, I'm gonna try that small group and I don't wanna hoard it. I'm gonna ask other people to join that small group with me, right? And then we've got a couple of people who are leading small group who were like, I don't really wanna lead small group, but okay, fine, I suppose I will. And Eric Hummel, all by his lonesome in that group. A group of a bunch of women and Eric is a co-lead. Why? Because the grace that God gave him, he decided, I won't hoard that. I'll distribute it as a conduit. And you know what? Lives change. So here's my big question for you. What if your heart beat with God's and you understood that your life is to be marked by generosity? Because I think generosity is so much bigger than we think it is. I say generosity and you think, man, Hans really wants me to write a bigger check to the church. It's not what it's about. It's not what generosity is about. Generosity is about a life that beats, a heart that beats with God's where everything that God has given you just flows out of you so freely and you're not worried about getting yours and you're not worried about what's yours and you're not worried about everything that you need. What you're worried about is distributing the grace of God to people that need to have it. It's a value of the new church, but ultimately it's bigger than that. It needs to be a value in the way that we live life. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward, the praise team to come forward. We're going to pray. Uh, we're going to hear from Malia about a couple of other announcements, things that, that we want you to hear. I'll remind you, if you're visiting with us today, you're under no obligation to participate in the offering. This is something that those of us who call Blessed Hope home, that we do to fund the ministries of the church. And the ministries of the church are all about distributing the grace of God where it needs to be. Okay? So uh, would you pray with me? Um, Heavenly Father God, we love you. And we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that uh, there was a point in time when you declared it long, long, long ago that there would be a star that would rise from Israel, that would hold the scepter, that would, that would be God to all nations, that, that people would bow down and worship in reverent awe. And God, we, we thank you that you kept that promise that, that that first Christmas that you pulled back the curtain of eternity and you stepped in to human history. You stepped into time, born human, a baby. You emptied yourself of everything that you had to be born in flesh. Why? So that you could save us from our sins. Because there is good news of great joy that born to us this day in the city of David is Christ the King. You stepped into human history and you gave us everything we need. You poured the grace of God out in abundance on us and you continue to do so in our everyday lives in the way that we live. And so, Father, I just pray that we will be conduits of that grace, that rather than hoarding it and keeping it to ourselves, that we will let it flow through us and we will be about the work of the ministry that you've given us. And that way, this Christmas, our hearts can beat with yours. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. Amen.